Hello, my name is Anastasia Bandaburi, and I would like to welcome you to Demystifying Science, the show where we take an hour every week to make smart people answer all of our questions. This week's episode is with Dr. Matthew Heron, professor of evolutionary biology at Georgia Tech University. He found us through a series of articles I wrote for the blog about the emergence of multicellularity and joined us for an excellent conversation on the subject. Over the course of the hour, we covered all kinds of topics, from what the biology of vulvacine algae can tell us about our own multicelled nature, to more philosophical subjects like the emergence of life on Earth, the value of careful speculation, and the way that basic science encourages us to pursue curiosity simply for the sake of knowing what's possible. It was a pleasure having Dr. Heron on the show, and we know you love what he has contributed to our project. As always, if you enjoy what we do, come join us on Patreon. A few dollars a month, if you can spare them, is all we need to keep going and going. If you can't afford a donation, never fear. Just tell all your friends to check out the show, and then come hang out with us on Facebook or Twitter. Right now, though, we have Dr. Heron here to tell us about where biology on Earth is headed. I don't think that evolution is a teleological process. I don't think there is an end point, at least not one that's predetermined. I am a big believer in the role of contingency that Stephen Jay Gould argued fairly persuasively in favor of. He posited that if you could turn time back 500 million years and let it play forward again, would you get the same outcome? He thought that if you ran the tape forward a thousand times, you'd get a thousand different outcomes. That view is not universally accepted. There's a guy named Simon Conway Morris who very famously disagreed with Stephen Jay Gould about this. They had a series of exchanges in Natural History Magazine. There are limits to what we can know. So we will probably never know how life evolved on Earth. The best we're ever gonna be able to do is say what's plausible, not to say this is how it happened. are studying a fascinating question that everyone has a stake in. Why is it that there are creatures of many cells versus creatures of only one cell? Exactly. Right. <laughs> so do you have an answer for that right off the bat? Uh, no, not one answer. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, there's probably a lot of answers for that because there have actually been a lot of independent events throughout the history of life on earth where single-celled organisms have evolved into multicellular organisms and, and is that to say that it's a, a an adaptive advantage to do so probably <laughs> at least in some circumstances and that's what's so fascinating it, it hasn't been across the board we still have bacteria hanging around that are perfectly content to remain single-celled Exactly. I mean, the, the vast majority of life on Earth is single-celled, even today. So what that suggests to me, in combination with the fact that there have been lots and lots of independent origins of multicellularity, is that it probably is advantageous in some circumstances, not in others. And, and we should also allow for the possibility that you know, not everything in evolution is about adaptation. Some things in, in evolution happen through neutral processes as well. So 
we can't really say for sure that any particular origin of multicellularity was driven by a particular selective pressure or by selection at all. So you're, you're speaking of accidental processes, or what's an example of these neutral processes? So, okay, so neutral theory is a big deal in evolution, and it's, it, it's based on the fact that biological populations are all finite in size. So if you think about a sampling process where, you know, say, I'm trying to think of a good example here. Um, you've got a mixture of blue and red balls and you're going to pick 10 and there's 60% red balls and 40% blue balls. So in theory, if you pick 10, you should get six and four, but you're not going to get that every time, right? Sometimes you're going to get seven and three. Sometimes you might get eight and two. Sometimes you might get 10 and zero. Mm -hmm. And if if you were picking an infinite number of balls, you would get a 60-40 ratio. But if you're picking a limited number of a finite number, most of the time or a lot of times you're not going to get exactly that ratio. And so in finite populations, the frequencies of different gene variants can change from one generation to the next without any selection going on at all. And Just fact, because it's some, random noise within the system as sort of reproduction happens. And people yeah, are in the right place at the right time to reproduce. And What's that? Uh, just creatures end up being in the right time at the right place to reproduce and for whatever reason. It, yeah, you know, exactly. There's luck and chaos, I guess, in nature as well. Yeah, I said it in a much more long-winded way. but <laughs> <laughs> We try to break it down to, you know, we're just trying to get the dumbed-down version for ourselves. For uh, folks who don't spend all their time looking at these matters, and and if you did that, if you did that lots of times, say you picked ten, and you got seven and three instead of six and four, and then you multiplied each one of those by ten, so you you had seven hundred and three hundred. You picked ten again, maybe this time you get eight and two, maybe not, maybe you get six and four, maybe you get eight and two, but you can actually lose a variant that way. If you do it enough times, you may find that eventually you don't have any blue ones at all. All you have is 10 red ones. Hmm. And the idea is that with enough repetitions, you lose some variants that are beneficial, but you'll acquire other ones that are brand new in the population. And they would sort of, with enough repetitions, emerge as being fixed in the population or present in the next generation. Yeah. The, the only thing I, I would change about what you just said is that if it was... What we're talking about here is variants that don't affect fitness very much. So I wouldn't necessarily call them beneficial. Hmm. We're talking about variants that don't have a big impact on whether you live or die, whether you reproduce or fail to reproduce. Those can get fixed or lost from populations just through neutral processes. And how does this so, connect back to multicellularity? I just wanted to make the point that for a particular origin of multicellularity, it's entirely possible that it happened through neutral processes. We shouldn't assume that every single origin of multicellularity was an adaptive or selective process. Mm -hmm. Is it possible to say, though, that one, after it emerges and that it doesn't disappear, that it eventually proves 
benefit or is that something that are there are there creatures that are multicellular with no apparent benefit whatsoever <laughs> <laughs> they're just like uh, walking around multicelled but just you know for no good you know, reason probably not and and the reason i say that is because we know there are costs to being multicellular so you know you need more food um you there uh you're more let's see what are the disadvantages to being multicellular? I guess you're going to reproduce more slowly. Don't you eat more or photosynthesize more. You also die in a different way, right? For a lot of multicellular organisms, that's true. Like there, but, it seems like there's more of a, con- and this is, we're getting, we're getting metaphysical <laughs> early on in the conversation, but it seems that multicellularity also, you know, in addition to changing how you live, it also changes what death means because for a bacteria that undergoes binary fission or sorry, a yeast that undergoes binary fission, you don't have death really. You have this sort of dispersal into the population, but for a multicellular organism, there appears to be a moment where you can say that, okay, this is. The, the end. There's only one cell that doesn't die at the end or something like that. Yeah. yeah. I, there's a great science fiction story based on that premise. I think it's called, and I don't remember who wrote it. I believe it's called Mortal Gods. Hmm. And the idea is that humans are the only species in the universe, the only intelligent species in the universe that dies because everything else just divides the way you're talking hmm. about. Um, you know, in a lot of cases, though, it's it's actually more complicated than that. So a lot of things, a lot of times, even things that look like um, binary fission, or they are binary fission, they're not perfectly symmetrical. And if you really do track the the individual cells, you will find that there is a lineage that dies. Hmm. Uh, you can see that most clearly in um, in budding yeast where you know they don't they don't split equally in two they split very asymmetrically they form a bud on their on the side they're brown so they don't really have a side but you know on their surface they form a little bud it grows a little bit and then it breaks free so you ha- so you have a clear mother cell and a clear daughter cell which it, you don't really have with e coli right well in some really old bacteria you know the is the firmicutes are sporulating, so it's almost like they're budding off little seeds as well. It's kind of interesting. Interesting. Though but, I, so, I wonder so if there's the a yeast. difference there, though, like where the yeast, it seems like the mother cell can give birth to multiple daughter, like a single mother cell buds multiple times. Hmm. Multiple but limited. Multiple but limited. So I, and with the firmicutes, I think that it's a direct one-to-one relationship where one bacterium develops a spore right but i guess it divides and then the old the old parent dies off yeah that's yeah. true that's true which so is similar to the animals but so there's a limited number of times that the yeast can divide right and and then it's basically dead the mother cell basically dies after a certain number of divisions so it's not entirely true for all unicellular organisms that they don't die in in a similar way to what we're thinking of but but i always have thought that's a really fascinating just kind of philosophical problem that, you know, when an E. coli divides, you don't have a mother and a daughter. Mm. You've got two copies of what was there before. Mm. And in, in the unicellular realm, is that more common or less common than having a sort of a discrete lineage of mother and daughter? Uh, if I understand the question right, I think it's probably more common in, in unicells, as you suggested, although there are 
multicellular organisms that divide, that multiply by fission, like uh, placozoans, for example, are actually animals hmm. that divide. They just divide into like an amoeba. Well, my question was, which the, the, the question of an animal that divides by binary fission is fascinating. But my, my question was, among unicellular organisms, is it more common for there to be the yeast model or is it more common for there to be the E. coli model? That's a great, <laughs> very deep question. Um, I, think, I think that the E. coli model is a little more common, but even that is not always as it seems because it, there's been recent research that shows that even a lot of things that do binary fission, the way you're talking about, there is a sort of hidden asymmetry where, for example, one daughter, let's call it, one of the two products of division ends up with the older and more damaged proteins mm. than the other one. And is, is, and if, if that keeps going, that lineage will eventually die of the accumulation of these damaged proteins. Mm-hmm. So there, there is an asymmetry there, even though you can't usually see it. That's fascinating. And that, I mean, that, that speaks to like, the depth of study that's required to be able to actually see these sorts of effects. Yeah, I wanted to back it up a little bit and find out how you got into this question in the first place and uh, hear a little bit about your story of what got you interested in the question of multicellularity and how you came to be studying what you're doing today. So I was doing a master's degree at the University of Central Florida uh, studying squirrels and the ways that squirrels are related to each other. Huh. And I took a course in mathematical modeling and I decided to do a project. I don't remember why on the evolution of multicellularity. We had to do a semester project. Why were you into squirrels in the first place? What, what pulled you in that direction? (laughs) It was really sort of, uh, opportunistic. It was what one of my committee members was studying and she needed to know the answer to a particular question Mm. about squirrels. And I had some of the skills to answer that question. So I I decided to make that my master's thesis. You were making yourself useful. Yeah, trying to anyway. Okay. So in this project, I I studied these guys, these algae called Volvox, Hmm. which are a model system for the evolution of multicellularity. And I just got really interested in it. There's, There's a book about Volvox written by a guy named David Kirk, who's kind of the father of the field. And so I, I read that book and I was fascinated by the whole thing. Uh, what, so, so what makes them unique? What, what is uh, so fascinating about this particular organism? Oh my goodness. Now, now we're going <laughs> to... Yeah. <laughs> so what's great about Volvox, there's, there's two things. One is that for a multicellular organism, they're relatively simple. They only have two cell types. They have what we call somatic cells, which are the ones that die, that are mortal, and they mainly function for swimming. They each have two little, uh, two little hair-like flagella that they use to uh, motivate themselves through the water. And then they have the, I don't know if your listeners are going to see this, but these bigger cells are, are what are called germ cells. Mm, yep, they can yeah. see. They can half of them can see, anyways. We we release it okay. both in audio and visual. 
Okay, I wasn't sure about that. But yeah, maybe we can so, describe uh, it also for the listeners. Yeah. So Volvox is a big green ball made up of lots of smaller green balls. And there's bigger and smaller of the small green balls. We're talking about the bigger ones right now. And those are gonidia that actually divide to make baby Volvoxes. So, you know, humans might have a couple of hundred different types of cells. You've got liver cells and cornea cells and skin cells, fat cells, and all that stuff. Volvox just has two. So partly because of that, it became a model for understanding the evolution of cellular differentiation. And is this one of the only ones that we know of that has two, or is this uh, is there a whole class of little... Wow, that is a great question. <laughs> little critters with two cells. Two types of cells. Sorry, two types of cells. Sorry. You know, I think it's pretty rare. I'm, I'm not going to say it's the only because there's very little in biology. <laughs> and, and is the thought that they, they could sort of prove some missing link in this, in this transition from unicellular to multicellular? Just to... I, I wouldn't say that because they're, they're not ancestral to anything. I see, I see. But it's just, it's a model for understanding how cellular differentiation can happen. Mm. Do you imagine that yeah. Volvox could eventually develop a third type of cell? Like, is it something that you can push it mm. towards? That <laughs> is something that we have talked about. <laughs> and there's different opinions about that. Mm. Um, I tend to think that probably it could happen. Other people think probably not for reasons that might take too long to explain. <laughs> well, it seems like if you were, okay, so from my limited understanding of types of, of tissues, you'd have to start getting basically, you know, circulatory systems and organ systems. And it, it's hard to imagine how that could come just de novo from two cell types that are perfectly fine doing what it is that they're already doing. Well, would it be the first step would be like towards a eukaryotic type thing? Is, is that what would happen? Like well, there's organelles that appear first or how, how does that leap happen? I mean, I guess these are individual cells. Uh, are they eukaryotes? No. The well, algae? Yes. Yeah, they are eukaryotes, I see. Not everything we call algae is, is eukaryote. Sometimes we call uh, cyanobacteria blue-green algae. But I kind of lost the question. There. Well, yeah. So hold on. Before we get onto the question of how you could push something that is um, two two types of cells into more types of cells, you were sort of leading us through the arc of what it was that fascinated you about Volvox. So you're studying them because they offer you a model system for being able to understand what it looks like when you have just two types of tissues. And then where does that where where are the other things that sort of lead you down into the 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 vibrant interest that is Volvox? So yeah, that that first aspect is really what what David Kirk worked on for most of his career was working out the 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 molecular genetics of cellular differentiation in Volvox. What really fascinated me about Volvox is their relatives. So they belong to this group of algae where Volvox is actually the biggest and the most complicated in this group. There are actually single-celled algae in this group. There are algae with four cells, four identical cells, eight cells, 16 cells, 32 cells, and so on up to about 50,000 in Volvox. And that's a really powerful thing for using the comparative method in evolutionary biology, because you can look at that and you can say, well, 
what did their ancestors look like? What did the ancestors of any particular pair of algae look like? And if you have a big sample like that, with lots of different, I want to be careful with this wording. I'm going to say intermediate stages, but I'm using that as a little bit of a metaphor because they're not really intermediate to anything. Like there's no final form. And you're using that instead of saying species? No, 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 they are species. Okay, they are species. I'm just, I'm trying to avoid implying that some of these simpler ones are ancestors of the more complicated ones because they're all living species, right? The four-celled ones are alive and happy today. And they could just maybe be analogous for what an intermediary might look like or something like that. That is, that is exactly it, yes. Probably Volvox had a four-celled ancestor and an eight-celled ancestor and a 16-celled ancestor. They're not the same things that are around today, but we can kind of use the ones that are around today as, as what, like, like you said, analogies for what Volvox's ancestors might have looked like. And so we can put together a sort of plausible series of steps through which a single-celled alga could have evolved into something like Volvox. It's interesting there's no odd-numbered alga here. Yeah, as a matter of fact, they're all powers of two. So that, that probably tells you something about how this happened. Yep, it does. <laughs> there, there, was some, there was some, what would you say, like some sort of equal division going on or something, something where some, somebody wasn't dying off immediately? Well, it can't be like the budding yeast cell at the very least, right? That's right. Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's actually critical to understand their biology, that their method of cell division is, is different from what we usually think about. So... In, in contrast to what we were talking about earlier, binary fission, where you know you start with one cell, it divides in two, they divide into four, they divide into eight, and so on. These algae do something a little bit differently. They they grow really the cells, the individual cells will grow really really big. So, for example, let's say you've got an eight-celled algae. Each of its cells will grow to eight times its original size before it divides at all. And then it will divide three times really fast, two, four, eight. It can happen in an hour. Hmm. And how long does it take to grow to the eight times its normal size? For most of them, it's a matter of days. Interesting. Maybe two, three, four days. And so... Is I'm... this just a matter of scaling the size up, like getting the proper uh, sort of cytoplasmic volume necessary to host the subsequent number of cells? or? Yeah, it is. It's a matter of getting big enough, getting enough cytoplasm to divide into enough cells to make a, a baby. Mm -hmm. that and that means that they start, they basically start life with all their cells. Mm. So that eight celled alga, you know, that, that cells, the mother cell is going to divide three times to make eight cells to make an eight cell daughter colony. It's not going to divide anymore. Like they have all of their materials in place, basically. It's just a matter of reshaping or something like this. Right. I, that's fa I mean, that's, that's pretty unusual. So the, the, the structure that's behind you is an eight-celled structure that, on the wall? Well, this, no, this one's about 2,000 cells. Okay, that makes more sense. But the ones that you study in the lab are much smaller than that one sometimes. I study all of them. Okay. <laughs> right, so, okay. 
The, the Volvox is a model for studying the emergence of multicellularity because it has all of these characteristics that allow you to simplify the playing field, right? Because if you're trying to look at a human and to reduce the human to a, a functional model, that's, that's almost impossible because there's just too much going on. Yeah, and that's right. And, and also, we're so far diverged from our unicellular ancestors or our living unicellular relatives. You know, multicellularity probably evolved in our ancestors something like 600 to 800 million years ago. And all those intermediate species have, are lost. We, we can't look at them to see what our ancestors might have looked like that far back unless we get really lucky with the fossil record. Yeah, I was going to say, is there, are there, can a fossil preserve a single-celled organism? Or you can see these, this level of resolution in, in the record? You can, and there's lots of, lots of unicellular fossils. There have been some fascinating discoveries just in the last few years. Hmm. But it's often, a lot of these single cells don't look that different from each other, even if they're very distantly related. Mm, from the outside bio- right exactly which is all you can see in the fossil mm-hmm. for the most part you certainly can't uh sequence their dna right and see how it compares to other unicellular organisms so it's really hard to know with certainty what a lot of these things were and is there an emergence of multicellularity happening right now that's sort of against the background noise of single-celled life on earth that humans just aren't necessarily able to get their eye on? Or do you think that this is something that happened at a particular window of development of life on earth that the window has closed and this is what we've got? So I don't, I don't think it's the second of those two possibilities Hmm. because when I talk about all these different origins of multicellularity throughout the history of life on earth, they're not constrained to one particular time window. You know, uh, Volvox probably evolved multicellularity something like 200 million years ago. Um, the brown algae, things like kelps, about the same time, about 200 million years ago. Animals, 600 to 800. Plants, maybe half a billion years ago. They're all different ages. What's the youngest so version of that? That is the 200 million years, the youngest? Yeah. <laughs> Oh, great question. Um, like, is it possible someone could go out into the woods tomorrow and scoop up a brand new uh, species that's doing, that, that has recently evolved to be, you know, four cells or something as opposed to the original? And if they did, would... Uh, would you notice? Would yeah. you notice, right? Yeah. Uh, so absolutely that's possible. And, you know, one of the things that complicates this is how do we define multicellularity? Mm. There's actually a lot of gray area there. I would think that it goes, you know, two, and then we're, we're golden, no? You would think, but there's actually a lot of organisms on Earth that have what we might call sort of marginally multicellular life cycles. Because hmm. one thing you got to remember is that most multicellular organisms have a single-celled stage in their life cycle right? Even we do, right? The zygote stage is a single-celled stage. Mm. That's true. I remember these diagrams from biology, the ones that are the, like the very, like the multiple cycles of like cell behavior. I remember always seeing those and just it causing a headache. 
just for a second. Yeah. And there's lots of things that form sort of temporary multicellular structures. Um, things like cellular slime molds, for example, live most of their lives as amoebae. Like, uh, what is it, discoidium? Yep, yep, dictyostelium, discoidium, yep. That's the, the model organism in that system. The slugs. And that one is crazy, right? Because they live basically dispersed as amoebas, and then they hit some kind, it's a density-dependent signal, and they aggregate in order to create this multicellular reproductive stock that then disperses spores like that it can kind stars. of wiggle around and act sort yeah, of worm-like. And- we, were look- we, we, we looked into this for an episode that we were doing on uh, cheaters, and, and it seems like it's a model system for studying the emergence of cheaters because those that won't form the stock versus the fruiting body would necessarily crash the population. But it, it is a very strange organism. It's a story of self-sacrifice and heroics and, <laughs> you know, the whole nine yards. So. Yep. Yeah, it, and it's a fascinating system. But you, I think you can begin to see there where there's a gray area. Like, would you call that a multicellular organism then? Mm, depends when you're there looking. Are things that are even less kind of along that spectrum than that. And so, and what does it look like to be less along that spectrum? So for me, I'm like, okay, so if it forms a body that moves around made of many cells that then behaves, I would say that that's well past the hard cutoff of multicellular. But but where's where's the gray area? Where does the gray area live? Of well, maybe. Yeah, how do you define multicellularity? I guess that's yeah. Let's go there. <laughs> well, let, let let's let's start with your definition, which which is great. You know, because you know definitions are not right or wrong. They're they're useful or less useful. So we can pick one and we can run with it as long as we're explicit about it. Absolutely. So so what you're when you're saying things like coming together to form a body moving around in an organized manner, things like that, which I think is a, is a fairly reasonable definition. There are, organ, there, I'm going to say, quote, single-celled organisms that sometimes in response to some kind of threat or environmental stress will form a multicellular clump that doesn't really do anything except sort of hunker down and wait for the poison to wash away or the predators to go away or whatever. And so it would seem like the intentional, the intentional motion is, is critical then in the definition, perhaps the unified unified motion, I suppose. That wouldn't be part of my definition. If we're going with that definition, then still there are gray areas Mm. here. There are things that, that form multicellular structures that do it temporarily that don't have much coordination among the cells um, that, that may break up again into single cells. Are there times that you form that organisms form a multicellular structure that does not have a reproductive purpose? Yeah, I would say there are. He's just like mentioned that. like the the defensive posturing and the defensive. Okay, all right. I guess if you zoom out far enough to the defensive posturing, I can see it being. If if I've been that under reproductive, I think that reproductive begins to lose all meaning. <laughs> so I'll avoid doing that. Now, the other really great example of gray areas things like biofilms, mm. which 
can be quite organized, but they can also be really simple. They can just be, you know, some, so here, here's a good example. If you have a, if, if you grow E. coli bacteria on an agar plate, they'll form a little multicellular plaque on the plate. We don't think of that as multicellular. It is multiple cells living in contact with each other, but we don't think there's a lot of coordination going on there. We don't think that there's... Um, like, does the division of labor play into the way that you define... Like, I guess this all comes down to what is an individual, you know, uh, what what constitutes the individual? And is, is that necessary? Because uh, like Dr. Benderbury, uh, during her PhD, was looking at these biofilms, actually, and as I understand it, there really was a great deal of complex uh, specialized roles throughout the various depths of the biofilm in response to the different levels of oxygenation and things like this. So I don't know. I'm always very terrified by this idea that things are simple because it really seems to me that the closer you look at them, the more complex they actually appear to be. And, and uh, Yeah, I think you're right. But biofilms can be very complicated, can have division of labor, can have signaling going on between the different cells. They, I wouldn't say they always have those properties, but they certainly can. And there's an active debate about whether we should think of biofilms as multicellular. Mm-hmm. And but again, all this depend, just depends on your definition. I like that. Yeah, it's a very good point. And to sort of to come back to where we something that we touched on at the very beginning of the conversation. So, what is the the sort of the advantages versus disadvantages of becoming multicellular? Why would there even be such an abundance of unicellular life if you have the advantages of community goods and you have the advantage of division of labor and you have the advantage yeah, like of the, size? What are the top three theories? You know, like there must be people just arguing about this nonstop as to what actually drives this process, but. Do you have like a yeah. do you have a a, a, hit, a t- top ten like tick list maybe you can share a few with? <laughs> you know, I actually do because um, some friends of mine, some colleagues of mine, just published a preprint today that talks about exactly that question. What what are the hypotheses for why multicellularity evolved? Perfect. Uh, Kai Tong is the, the lead author on that, and it's uh, work out of Will Ratcliffe's lab at Georgia Tech. And um, so I can give you a few of them, but I really like for a much more thorough discussion of that, that preprint is really a great resource. And, they, and they've got a just a beautiful graphic. Cool. We'll put it in the description, but maybe yeah. for the listeners, you can just just briefly overview sort of or your favorites yeah what are your favorites what's sort of the general line of thinking that's popular right now amongst the thinkers that are working on this so i think that um protection from predation is uh, is a major hypothesis and the idea there is basically just that you get to be too big to be eaten by whatever predator is common you know we've actually tested this experimentally. We've done this with some single-celled relatives of Volvox, where we expose them to a predator and they eventually, actually pretty quickly in a matter of months, evolved multicellular structures that were genetically fixed in the population. Hmm. So that's one. And I think there's, there's, there's good experimental support for that at least being plausible. Too big to eat. Yeah. 
or at least too big to, to eat by the predators that are common mm. in your environment. Um, another idea that is probably really relevant for things that don't move under their own power, like plants and algae, well, a lot of algae, my algae swim, but lots of algae we think of as seaweeds, right? Uh, kelps, things like sea let, you know, uh, green algae like sea lettuce, red, red algae like uh, nori, the stuff your sushi comes wrapped in, hmm. um, which is, I think they call it, I, I think the, the Tong at All Paper calls it um, competitive overgrowth, hmm. which is the idea that those organisms need a substrate to live on. They have to attach themselves to something. And there's immense competition for space on say a rock or a piece of coral or something like that. And so once you secure yourself a space, you want to capitalize on it as much as possible. So you get bigger so you can reproduce more. And at the same time, if you're a photosynthetic organism, you're shading out your competitors. Mm -hmm. that are also on that rock or on that piece of coral or, or sand or whatever. And, it, or, and if you don't, they'll, shade you out and then you'll starve because you can't photosynthesize anymore. So it's like an arms race of, of size and stability in the population. Yeah, exactly. And you can see that happening in a forest, just going out, going out in the woods and looking around and seeing the little saplings getting squeezed out. And yeah, we spend a lot of time in, in the Pacific Northwest. There's a lot of clear cuts. And so after you walk through the area, you can, you can start to really identify what the forest looks like after, you know, year one, year two, year 10. And it seems like a microcosm for the sort of the evolution of behavior, because you can see that it, it becomes advantageous for one tree to grow as quickly as possible and be as tall as possible and take up as much sun as possible. And I imagine that there's immense warfare happening underneath the ground that's basically each of them attempting to prevent the other from being successful, but they've somehow managed to kind of balance that. But I imagine that that's the case in the bacterial and the single-celled world as well, where if you have someone who's basically beginning to accumulate a lot of resources, the competitors are going to try to nip that in the bud as much as humanly possible by producing as much toxic stuff as they can. Algally possible. As, <laughs> as, uh, that's true. That's true, my mistake. All right, so we have them out competing. They ha we have this idea of, taking, of making the most of space and of being bigger than that that's trying to eat you. What, what else do you got? I, I want to just address one thing yeah, yeah. you brought up. That you're exactly right about this this warfare going on all the time, and that's why we have antibiotics, mm. right? That's that's exactly why fungi produce antibiotics to kill bacteria because of this constant warfare. That's how uh, penicillin was first characterized, first discovered. Um, so, to answer the other question, um, let's see. I'm not going to remember all of them. No, that's and, fine. And some of them. Some of them really apply more to aggregative multicellularity, which is what we were talking about with the, the dictyostelium. Like a, per uh, like a periodic multicellularity that's part of the life cycle. Well, a lot of things are, a lot of... All of us. Clonal multicellular things are, I mean, we're kind of that too. But um, yeah, that where they... They live a lot of their life cycle as single cells, and then they, they come. The difference between clonal and aggregative multicellularity 
in aggregate multicellularity, you have these free living things that come together to form a body. And they're not necessarily all genetically identical to each other. All the cells that make up a, a dictyostelium slug or fruiting body. Whereas in clonal multicellularity, you generally start with a single cell like we do, and it divides, 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 divides. So all the cells are basically genetically identical to each other. So this is a really far out question. And I recognize that it seems almost impossible for the answer to be yes. <laughs> However, so um, Lynn Margulis proposes the endosymbiont hypothesis, which is that you know mitochondria are an endosymbiont that is absorbed by an archaea that then becomes eventually the sort of the first eukaryotic cell. What about specialization? Is it possible that specialization, the way that you see in humans or more complex organisms than Volvox, comes from the coming together of multiple? organisms that have kind of blended their DNA and so everything is encoded but now looks like a nucleus and an organelle. Well, so that's on the cellular level, but also looks like a heart and a liver and the intestines. Like, is that... That's a thing. Okay. All right. <laughs> that's totally a thing. If you look at lichens, lichens are a combination of a fungus. Actually, it's been very recently discovered that most lichens are combination of two fungi and either an alga or a cyanobacterium. That's and, right. Yeah. And it was, it was discovered uh, by someone who I remember came to science really late in life, which I think is a very inspiring story because he had work. He'd, he'd come as, as an adult to do uh, grad school. And then he ended up in a laboratory where he was doing genetic sequencing and he was the one who uncovered it after decades of people looking, which I thought was a very interesting story. Hmm. I don't remember his name. Yeah, well, that <laughs> that happened in the department that I was in in the, at the University of Montana. Fascinating. So, were you there when it happened? I think I was. I wasn't there when the paper came out, and I didn't know that that, that it was going on. Sure. They didn't talk about it much until the paper came out in either Science or Nature. I forget which one. But so you're you're using the example of lichen, which is these multiple organisms living in one body, multiple different lineages living in one body, to create yeah. another organism to be that it could be extrapolated outwards to something that's more intricate. Because do they form, do they, yeah, yeah, specialize? Like, do they have organs inside of a lichen? I mean, I've looked at a lot of lichen and they definitely look crazy, but I don't know if they necessarily have organ systems. I don't know about organs. Uh, I would say that they definitely have tissues, at least some of the, you know, things like, um, some of the, they call them fruticose lichens, things like reindeer moss, which is actually a lichen. Um, they're, they're a pretty complicated structure. And I think you would say that they have tissues. I wouldn't necessarily go as far as to say organs. Okay. I will, we'll look into that. That's, lichen, lichen's fascinating. We, we haven't done an episode on that, but I think that it's worth... Yeah, I'm curious like, to what extent this... Pro well, I have two main questions. One is, where is all of this headed? Which I, I don't expect you to necessarily have an answer to, but uh, it's very curious. Like, is it a teleological process? Is there an end point? Why is the Earth doing this? 
Why, if it's, you know, obviously it's not outright evolutionarily necessary for all organisms to become multicellular. It seems like a particular little mission off to the side. And uh, is it, you know, are are our societies, are cities the next uh, stage in that evolution, interaction between multiple organisms that eventually can't live without one another? And, you know, what is, where's all this headed? What's going on? What's the bigger process here? So I don't know where it's headed. I don't think anybody does. Um, I don't think that evolution is a teleological process. I don't think there is an end point, at least not one that's predetermined. Um, I, I am a big believer in the role of contingency in evolution, which is something that uh, that Stephen Jay Gould argued pretty persuasive to me, fairly persuasively in favor of. Um, you know, the whole his whole book, Wonderful Life, is largely about the role of contingency in evolution. And can you sort of explain that concept to our listeners? Probably not as well as he did, but um, basically the idea that you know life has the ability to change its mind at the drop of a hat, something like that. I, I, I don't know. Am I on the well, yeah, using mind metaphor. <laughs> yes. yes. The, the, the metaphor, actually, I can explain it pretty well by stealing his words. Beautiful. <laughs> or stealing his ideas. Paraphrase. It's a borrow. Yeah. The metaphor that he used that is, I think, very powerful is the idea of rewinding life's tape. So he posited that if you could back up the, the so-called tape of life, if you, had, if you could turn time back, say, 500 million years mm. to around the, the Cambrian and let it play forward again, which get the same outcome. And he argued, and it wasn't, he, he didn't just assert, he made some pretty, what I think are compelling arguments to this, to support this. He thought that you would not get the same outcome, mm. that if you ran the tape forward a thousand times, you'd get a thousand different outcomes. Now, that's that view is not universally accepted. There's a guy named Simon Conway Morris who very famously disagreed with Stephen Jay Gould about this. They had a uh, a series of exchanges in Natural History magazine. Well, it seems like there's a lot of space for uh, for non-binary solutions to that question too. Yes. You know, things could you might have very similar looking things, but you know, the odds. Yeah, it, it also it seems intuitive to me that you wouldn't get the exact same outcome as well. And you see the people arguing this. This is a really hot topic just in, in the philosophical and metaphysical world, or even in physics for some strange reason, which is this determinism versus, you know, everything's uh, up to you kind of situation. And uh, The determinism yeah. of it is actually interesting to me, and I've thought about this on the level of the limited shape relationships that are necessary in order to perform the functions that have been decided as universally necessary for all of life according to the environment even. according to the environment right like if you have earth if you have earth-like conditions uh, earth-like gravity earth-like chemical abundances is it possible that all of the organisms that are viewed as being related to one another or not even all of them but some of them have just converge to the same genetic code and they're actually our understanding of everything fitting together on a single tree of life is just absolutely bananas wrong 
I think that that is extremely unlikely. <laughs> okay. All right. I'll take that. But I, I well, hear you say extremely unlikely, but not impossible. Well, I, I'm reluctant to say almost anything is impossible. But here's why I don't think that's likely. I, I do think, okay, so convergence, convergent evolution is a hugely important process. I don't think anybody really disagrees about that. You know, we, we, there's so many examples of it that I could point to. And it does argue that, for example, something like a tree, like coming back to what you were talking about a while back, something like a tree is probably inevitable. And I, I, this is not my original argument. I think this goes back to Dawkins, but I'm not actually sure. The, the argument that if there is life elsewhere and it is photosynthetic, you know, the, the ecosystem or the biosphere is basically driven by sunlight or starlight, then something like trees probably exists because there's always going to be competition for light. To get to the light, you have to get tall, just like you were talking about earlier. You have to crowd out your neighbors or overshade, overshadow your neighbors. Mm. And that imposes certain uh, biophysical constraints. You have to have a certain amount of strength in your tissues to be able to grow tall. And there's going to be competition that will, that will drive that. It's probably nearly inevitable on a planet that has liquid water that there's going to be something shaped like dolphins and swordfish and killer whales and uh, what are they called? The, the uh, ancient extinct reptiles that were... Ichthyosaurus. Uh, ichthyosaurs. Thank you. Um, you know, that, that body shape has evolved many times because it's really efficient at going fast through the water. So... We probably, if you rewound life's tape and played it again, you would probably get something that had that body shape. Now, it might not be a reptile. It might not be a fish. And there might not be, maybe there would be a mammal that was shaped that way, but maybe it wouldn't be a close relative of hippopotamus. Maybe it would be a close relative of squirrels, right? Hmm. Maybe some other mammal lineage would have gone back to the water. Swimming squirrels is terrifying, but I'll entertain it. It is kind of, yeah. And there's flying squirrels, but swimming squirrels, that's a whole other whole other ballgame. Uh, and once again, I've lost the thread of the well, question. The thread of the question was, is it possible for oh. all of life to have shared genetic codes through this sort of mechanism of convergence? Because I hear you saying that, you know, this body plan evolves multiple times in order to do the same sort of function of moving quickly through water. And I'm like, well, then why is the, you know, F1, F0 ATPase or ATP synthase not also the best possible shape for making ATP? Well, I don't know about that. I don't know why it's not the ideal shape for making ATP, but if you're talking about convergence at the DNA level, which, which I think is what you're asking, right? Is it I guess, it, that, honestly, this, this concept could go all the way back, right? You could really say, is life of ha occurring even all of the time? And we're just missing it because it's so convergent of a process that it just looks the same every time. And we think yeah. it's on a tree when it's actually just occurring yeah. Because well, when you start to look at bacteria, you, you start to very quickly lose your ability to place them upon a tree where there's a lot of horizontal gene transfer, there's a lot of 
sort of when you start to try to reconstruct uh, the last universal common ancestor, like Nick Lane has written about this, where if you start to do evolutionary reconstructions of a common ancestor, you very quickly realize that there's too much mixing and shifting between bacteria to be able to say so. So why is it not possible to have a convergent sort of production of gene sequences? And why is it unlikely? I yeah, why so. is it unlikely to have a convergence of gene sequences that do the same sort of thing, but not necessarily be related? Okay. So there's two questions. There are there. two questions. I'm I, sorry. I hope I remember to get to both of them. Um, the reason I think the second of those questions, the reason I think that's really unlikely is because there are probably multiple, well, we know there are multiple ways to achieve most ends. There are multiple gene sequences that will produce an enzyme to achieve a certain, you know, to catalyze a certain reaction. Mm -hmm. In fact, there are an immense number of DNA sequences that will pr produce an enzyme that, to perform any particular catalytic function. In other words, so, they could change quite a bit and still get the job done. Like you could have a million ways to make a house and it would still be a house, essentially. Right. And, and, and what that tells me is that if I look at that, at that enzyme in a human and I look at and I find the same enzyme in a, let's say, a coanoflagellate, the, the close unicellular relative of animals, I find that same enzyme and it has a very similar nucleotide sequence, then I'm pretty confident that the most recent common ancestor of those two organisms had that enzyme, that it didn't evolve convergently. And these are like exactly the same, right? You're talking about like, this is... Well, it doesn't have, it's almost never exactly mm, the same, mm. but it might be 90% similar or 80% similar. Because you do see like pyramids in Egypt and pyramids in, in the New World. Well, not even that. You have butterflies that are identical in on one island that have absolute convergence in a different place because that's just, it seems to make butterflies them... Butterflies and bats. And it just makes them more fit. And so it's it, this is something that I was always obsessed with. So when I was doing my PhD, we did a lot of sequencing. We did a lot of, we were looking at the evolution of a protein and you know the conventional idea is that you look at the you look at the protein you look at the homology of the dna sequence with other organisms and then you reconstruct a phylogenetic relationship of where the pro of where the gene that encodes the protein came from and i was always i always spent a lot of time wondering about this, the fidelity of that because if you have something that's very very similar and there's just a few nucleotides of difference that's harder for me to imagine but sometimes you have you have similarity that looks like it's basically chunks of proteins of different genes that have been sort of, they've come together to create something that has some of the same pieces as one organism and some of the same pieces of another organism. And that to me seems more convergent-y. That's a very scientific way of saying that. Yeah, and it's, it is entirely possible that something like that could happen. But the suggestion that, so I, I appreciate Nick Lane's argument, and he's, I, I don't disagree with it at all, but you're talking about a very, very deep uh, part of the, the tree of life, right? Absolutely. Whereas if, if we think about, if we look, look a little bit more shallow, and we look at a particular enzyme in 
animals. I can predict with a, with a high degree of certainty that the human version of that enzyme is going to be more similar to the chimpanzee version of that enzyme than it is to the squirrel version of that enzyme. And, the, and it'll be closer to the squirrel version of the enzyme than it will to the earthworm version of the enzyme and closer to the earthworm version of the enzyme than it will to the coanoflagellate version of the enzyme, right? But there's, an, there's an order to these things. And I, and I can predict with a high degree of certainty that everything I just said will be true of most enzymes. Will all... They all have similar jobs, too. They do have... So, yes, they do all have similar like the, jobs. The monkey and the human have similar physiological requirements. But my question is that does that apply to all enzymes? Like if you were to look at all of the enzymes that are in the squirrel versus all of the enzymes that are in the human, would they all be more similar to one another than they are between the human and the coanoflagellate? Or is there some randomness there that emerges as you're looking at similarity? And I don't know that anybody really, I, I, I've never seen this sort of analysis. I think that because it's very difficult, I think a lot of genes are not annotated. I think that we have these gross measurements of, you know, this is the percent similarity between human and chimpanzee or human and squirrel, but I'm not sure if somebody has gone through and actually looked to see that, okay, across the board, the similarity between these enzymes is very, very, very high versus there being randomness in that. Yeah, I mean, I can't swear that there are no exceptions. There, there could be cases where, for example, uh, one particular gene has a, has a very high mutation rate in, in one particular lineage. Let's say in the squirrel lineage, this enzyme, this gene that codes the enzyme has a high mutation rate for whatever reason, for reasons I don't understand. Then it could be more different from the human version. But if you look at all 20,000 or so enzymes, you're going to find that I would be very confident that, you know, 19,900 and some of them are going to fit this pattern, at least at, at the gross level I've talked about, you know, where I'm only looking at four, four tax or five tax or something like that. Um, for the other question, I don't want to forget this one because it is a really interesting question. How do, how do we know life isn't constantly arising? We don't know that it isn't, we don't know for sure that life isn't constantly arising, but what we do know with a really high degree of confidence is that everything alive on earth today that we've ever described, that we've ever discovered and sequenced its DNA descends from a common ancestor. And the reason I say that basically goes down to the genetic code because there's nothing that we, that we know of that says that you couldn't have a different genetic code. And well, in fact, we have some small variants of the genetic code, but everything on earth basically has the same translation table from DNA to proteins. And there's no, there's no reason that has to be that translation table. There are an immense number of possible translation tables, an immense number of possible genetic codes. So this in my mind is actually how we, if we ever do discover life somewhere else, this is how we'll know whether pangenesis is true, whether 
If we discover life on Mars... Yeah, I was going to say, would that change your hypothesis if you start looking out into the you know, the greater galaxy and you start finding that everybody is using this uh, template and using the same DNA? Would it change your mind that perhaps this could be... Well, obviously, at that point, it would either be convergent or you're looking at some super widespread panspermia type thing. Right. And I would actually, if, if we found out that everything in the universe had the same genetic code, I would be more likely to believe in panspermia than convergence mm. as, a, as an explanation. Why is that? that? Just because you think there's so many possibilities. Why this one? Yeah, exactly. Mm. So if we found life on Mars and it had the same genetic code or a, you know, a close variant to what we find on Earth, I'd be pretty convinced right then and there that either Earth seeded Mars or Mars seeded Earth. Mm. Mm-hmm. Be the, the first thing I'd want to know is what's its genetic code? Mm-hmm. Well, if we're not careful, it sounds like we are going to seed Mars. So we, 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 met, with a, we met with one of these, uh, actually a biologist who was working. Was he a biologist? He was working on one of this uh, Perseverance yeah. mission, and he was very, very concerned that we were going to be taking little pieces of our home over there. So. It seems like it's almost would be a remarkable feat of luck if we didn't uh, seed Mars with something. Whether it can take roots and make little, uh, uh, make little Mars cities on its own or anything like that <laughs> has yet to be decided. Yeah, because it's almost impossible to truly sterilize a spacecraft. Exactly. So then where do you fall on panspermia now? Right, because evolution of multicellularity is pretty far upstream from evolution of life. But I assume that you have I assume that you have an opinion. That's all it is, is an opinion. I, I think it's more likely that life evolved on Earth than was seeded from somewhere else. But you know, I don't feel super confident about that opinion. I wouldn't I wouldn't bet my life on it. Um so and this is a and this is just because it's too unlikely for something to have arrived fully formed on earth or is it, is it just sort of, it feels right. Or where, where does that come from? (laughs) Or or you, you just think that the mechanism for its independence origins is plausible enough that why not? Well, because it's one of those things we we've talked, we talk about this a, a lot because, okay, so life has, and I know that we didn't talk about, we didn't tell you that we would ask all of these questions before we started. So I'm sorry. Um, but we talk about this a lot in terms of, you know, is there a plausible mechanism for the emergence of life if we cannot recreate it in a laboratory? Or find it happening in the ocean. Or find it happening in the ocean. Well, I wouldn't expect it to happen in the ocean. Interesting. Because the ocean's because not the same as it used to be? or The ocean's not the same as it used to be. And there's, there's so much competition mm. for nutrients that... You know, any anything that was on its way down that path and had the potential to evolve life would just get eaten. That's that yeah. that has always been my my rationale for it as well, because I'm like, how could you possibly populate a place that's already populated? As far as, you know, do I think it's plausible, even though we can't reproduce it in the lab yet? Um yes, I do think it's still plausible. I don't think that because we don't know how something happened, we can say that it didn't happen. So I I do think it's plausible. I also think that there are limits to what we can know. 
So we will probably never know how life evolved on Earth. I think the best we can hope for is sort of like I talk about with multicellularity is to identify plausible routes. I don't think we're going to be able to say this is how it happened. Of course. I think, yeah. be able- I think so much could be said for all of science in general. That's something we try to, we sort of come across over and over again is that we're really just restricting this possibility space. Right. But in this case, we're not even restricting it because it could be, you know, that 10 years from now, somebody gets the Nobel prize because they've managed to evolve life in the lab from completely, you know, inarguably non-living substances. Um, I guess the possibility space would be what mechanisms could possibly achieve that end. Right. Right. So that, that still won't rule out that it happened a different way, Mm. way that we never conceived. Right on. And so what is the, and you know, this is one of those questions that you don't ask a scientist, but I'm going to ask it anyways. If you can't come up with the answer, what is the what is the point of the exercise of searching for it? Like, why does science look for the answers of the origin of multicellularity or the origin of life? Or you know, you can go all the way out to like the 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 Big Bang. This is curiosity. This, curiosity. Yeah, it is curiosity, but curiosity is it's more satisfying when directed at something that you can point to and say, "We have figured this out." And so, like, what is it that drives you? And that continuously gets you interested in this question that you still, you know, after studying it for many years, are still captivated by it. <laughs> Even, There's a lot to unpack there. Well, I mean, because this is a question that on some level you have, you have recounted that you will never be able to answer. And so what is it that drives someone who is occupied with an unanswerable question? Okay, so for me, I am a big advocate and fan of curiosity-driven science. I want to know how things work. I want to know how things have worked and how they can work. I accept that there are limits to what I can know. And that's unfortunate, I think. To me, it it seems that way anyway. Uh, But this is the best I can do is... And I may not have always appreciated that, you know, it's something, you know, this is a question of epistemology, right? What can we know? And I'm arguing that for a lot of things in evolution, the best we're ever going to be able to do is say what was, what's plausible or to identify some things that are plausible, not to say, this is how it happened. I don't think I always appreciated that, you know, as as a starting grad student, when I was, you know, full of fire and convinced that I could do anything because I had sequenced DNA. (laughs) Well, there's a lot of gray space again between we can't know anything and we can know everything. And, and people tend to get hung up on these extreme possibilities. I feel like, and it often holds back a lot of discussion because we have a tendency to want to be extreme about all of, all of our ideas about how to go about things. Yep. You know, I'll, I'll be honest, you know, a part of it too, for me in, in the particular field that I'm in, and, you know, this is, we've touched on several things that, that touch on this, is the, the prevalence of creationism in, in this country, in the U.S., and so much of that boils down to the, these sort of so-called God of the gaps arguments that the 
because we don't know how it happened, it can't have happened, mm. right? Because we don't know how life originated, life cannot have originated through natural processes. Because it used, they don't say this so much anymore. They used to, but it used to be because uh, we we don't know how multicellularity evolved. It can't have evolved, at least not through natural processes. And so, by showing that there are plausible paths to multicellularity, hopefully, eventually, we'll find a plausible path to life. You break down the the you break down those arguments. You sort you of take the mysticism out of it to some extent. You, yeah, exactly. you at least offer a rational alternative to the mysticism should someone be interested in, in pursuing that. Yeah. yeah, and you know, Darwin was the first one to do this. You know, he he has this example of the vertebrate eye. So he, you know, he foresaw this argument and he made what to me is a pretty convincing argument against it. In 1859, he showed that in fact, there are lots of plausible intermediates between just a, a patch of pigment cells and a, a vertebrate eye. And we know that they're plausible because they exist in living organisms. Now, this is the caution I was making earlier. Those living organisms are not ancestors of vertebrates. So it doesn't show that that is how it happened, but it shows that it's plausible. Mm. It shows that it could have happened that way. Mm-hmm. And very similarly with the with these algae, that's that was one of the things that that I tried to do in grad school was to describe a plausible series of steps. Actually, I should give David Kirk credit for this. He, David Kirk was the first one to describe these steps through which a single cell could evolve into something like Volvox. What I did is try to place those steps in order, mm. basically. And is that what you're still is that what you're still working on in the lab today or <laughs> to be honest, that is a lot of what my grad student is or he's now my former grad student. He has graduated. That is a lot of what he's working on. <laughs> uh, but you- and you know, he may he may show that a lot of the stuff that I found was wrong. He already has shown <laughs> that some of the stuff that I found was wrong. Such is science, a real yeah. work in progress. But you were gonna. Uh, you were. You had a concluding thought. It sounded like you were saying. To be honest, to me, because you were. You were kind of wrapping up this idea of why study, of why study oh, this yeah. question. Well, that that is a motivator for me to uh, to basically break down these creationist arguments that are. Uh, you can call them gods, gods of the gaps arguments. You can call them argu- arguments from ignorance. I don't know how it happened, so it can't have happened. Nobody knows how it happened, so it can't have happened is a, is a more fair way to describe those arguments. Um, so, yeah, to me, that that is a motivating factor. Hmm. I mean, I think that that's a, that's, a, that's a very powerful motivator. And that's something that we spend a lot of time thinking about, too, where it's, you know, science is a field of possibility. And it seems that there are many questions that cannot be answered. And the joy is to find the things that are possible or the things that are captivating or the things that are interesting. It's this way of looking out onto the world in a more mechanistic way than perhaps most people are used to, but it does seem to order the universe in a way that is very satisfying. And in its best form could perhaps even lend itself towards bettering the world around us in terms of technological applications of the knowledge and so forth. 
Well, that's the thing, isn't it? Right. You know, this is why I, this is one of the big reasons I'm such an advocate for curiosity driven science or, you know, what you might call pure sciences that um, you don't know ahead of time what scientific discoveries are going to translate into things like you're talking about things that actually have direct benefits for human beings. You can't know that ahead of time. If you, and if you try to funnel your research into things that you're confident are going to have those kinds of outcomes in the short term, especially, then you're not allowing for the possibility of discoveries that you haven't anticipated or applications that you haven't anticipated of discoveries that you might not otherwise have bothered to study. Yes. Yeah. This, and you see this come up a lot. You hear, uh, especially basic biologists, like, complaining when they have to fill out these grants that they're always having to sort of chisel them into something that has a direct ap application when really we should be valuing the fundamental knowledge itself because of what might grow up from that decades, you know, from now or, or what may come. Do you have a sense for what, what can be done to prevent that from being a problem as someone who studies very basic research? You know, I'm, I'm actually pretty reluctant to talk too much about that for a very specific reason, which is that I'm, I'm currently doing a rotation as a program officer, officer at the National Science Foundation. Mm. And I don't want to do, I don't want to do or say anything that could be interpreted as representing NSF. Of course. Perhaps. In I fact, I'm, I could get in big trouble if I did Let's that. not get you in trouble. <laughs> yeah, let's not get, but it would be fascinating, you know, when you're done with the rotation, if it's something that you feel like you could comment on as someone who has had the direct experience with overseeing something like that to to be able to give some feedback. Because I think that this is a huge, you know, I've I've worked in basic research labs my entire career, and this has always been a concern that's on the back burner where people are very... And I, on the other hand, have always worked in technological engineering labs my whole career. And so it's, we've had very different experiences when it comes to, you know, paying the bills. Uh, I'll bet. And even like the kind of science that comes out of those labs and like how people define science and it, it's, it, it's an entire world, but we won't, we won't get you in trouble. <laughs> okay, thank you. Um, I think that we've, I mean, we've, we've taken, we've taken a lot of your time. There's, there's obviously other questions that have remained uh, unasked and unanswered. I, I suddenly had the thought of asking about viruses, but I think that that's tangential enough that we will, we will have to leave it for another time. Okay. Well, I've, I've had a lot of fun talking with you. It's, it's been our pleasure. You have a book coming out, as I understand it. Is that true? Oh yeah. <laughs> Not just me. Uh, uh, along with where we're at, Cliff. And Peter Conlon, we are the editors of a book that's going to be coming out uh, in March. Actually, we have a publication date now. It's called The Evolution of Multicellularity. And it's about the evolution of multicellularity. Cool. You want to make a mystery out of it? Yeah. Well, everybody, go out and check this one out when it comes out. I, I, where's it going to be? Is it going to be everywhere? It's going to hit the bookstores worldwide and <laughs> straight to the New York Times bestseller list? It, it is already for sale on Amazon, even though it's not out yet. Oh, cool. And um, actually, but you can get a better deal if you go to, uh, I think it's CRC Press. Uh, I can provide the link sure. to that. It happens to be the, the pre-orders are, I think, 20% off for a period of time that I'm not privy to. Cool. I want to check <laughs> they it. They call it a November it's sale. Better. So maybe it's November. I don't know. All right. Well, we'll, we'll put a link in the description so people can check it out. 
other than that is and I, sh- and I should say sorry oh, yeah. i should say it's an edited volume we didn't write most of it we have uh, a pretty large number of authors who each wrote one chapter mm. so it's like a collection of essays or how would you describe it yeah well the way i would describe it i think best is as a collection of review articles mm. nice so we we gave each author or set of authors um guidelines on what we would like them to write, which was mainly to synthesize one particular aspect of the evolution of multicellularity. Brilliant. Looking forward to it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Other than that, is there anywhere that folks can find you? Do you do do social media? Is your lab website the best place to catch up on what's going on in your life lately or going on in your lab life? Yeah, I am. uh, I'm X princeps. It's uh, X as an X-ray on Twitter. Uh, my lab website is matthewheron.net, I think. <laughs> matthewheron.something. I don't Google it, folks. <laughs> duck, duck, go it, whatever you do. Yeah, it's, it's not dot gov, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Stay away from his government involvements. It's not that. And that's, that's pretty much, you know, most, most things of import I post to Twitter. I do have a blog that I have not been very active on lately. It's called Fierce Roller because that's what Volvox translates into, Fierce mm-hmm. Roller, where I've written about all kinds of different things. But I, to be honest, I'm not publishing a whole lot there right now. All right. Fair we'll keep an eye on the future. All right. Well, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thank, yeah, you, thank you for joining us. Bye. Bye. Bye.